Hello there. Welcome to the Football Outsiders Radio Hour on Twitch. We are broadcasting live on twitch.tv slash FBOutsiders. Hi, I am Aaron Schatz, joined as always by Mike Tanier to talk some football. We've got a couple of guests coming on the show today. Uh, Greg Bedard will be here to talk about the New England Patriots and the big moves that happened in Foxborough over the last few days. Uh, Parker Fleming is going to come on a little later to do a college football preview, but uh, neither of them is here yet. (laughs) (laughs) So we're sort of flying by the seat of our pants a little bit this week. Uh, We thought we would start by um, going into this week's scramble for the ball and talking about some of the awards and the odds for winning various awards in the NFL. So I've got my scramble for the ball open on my computer screen. Mike, you've got it open too. Yep. Let's talk about the MVP award for 2021 first, because uh, I, I think my favorite part of this list, and they didn't list everybody who uh, who you can bet on, because you, know, you can bet on like so many different players. Right. I like that Jacoby Brissett's odds of winning the MVP yeah. award are the same – <laughs> are the same as Ezekiel Elliott or Aaron Donald. I like that. Yeah. That or Daniel Jones, you know, guys who like their teams are straight up saying, Hey, yeah, we're going to go out there with this guy. And this is our big playoff push. This is our quarterback, Daniel Jones, year three. He has the same odds as Jacoby Brissett of, of winning MVP award. I don't know if uh, whichever site that they got these, uh, they either got these odds. Some of them come from Bovada and some of them are from DraftKings. Uh, I wonder if just plus 10,000 is the highest that any of the odds go, and therefore nope. any player, is it plus 10,000 who's not at lower than that? Because otherwise, like having a backup quarterback in Miami have the same odds of winning MVP as Aaron Donald or Ezekiel Elliott or even other quarterbacks like Daniel Jones or Jared Goff seems a little ridiculous. Have I got bad news for you? The odds at uh, DraftKings go up to plus 20,000. So here's some of the people you can get at plus 20,000. Austin Eckler, that's not... Un- un- I'd rather take Austin Eckler at plus 20,000 than Jacoby Brissett at plus 10,000, I think. I- I- I'm with you with that. Travis Kelsey at plus 20,000. Oh, I'd definitely rather take that one, yeah. Right. Am I on the right list? Am I, did I, uh, 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 most valuable player award, yes. So they go down. He's also guys like uh, Mitch Trubisky at plus 20,000. Uh, Another backup, Ryan, yeah. Yeah, Ryan Fitzpatrick. Uh, Chris Godwin, there's a guy that was like, I maybe a, a weird story that he did it, but you can see it happening. So yeah, you can go way down a rabbit hole. Miles Gaskin at plus 20,000. There's another guy. You can come up with a wild scenario where the Dolphins are great. And he catches a hundred passes and, you know, runs for a thousand yards and, and, and makes you, uh, you know, makes you 200 to one. I was, I've said, I think the best bet for MVP is Mahomes at five to one. Because I can't imagine that the odds that Patrick Mahomes is the best quarterback in the league this year are any lower than 50%. And if he's the best quarterback in the league, he probably will win the MVP award because that MVP award usually goes to the best quarterback in the league. Right. So I think plus 500 is honestly too high odds. Like I would happily bet on that. I, I think those odds should be much closer to something like plus 250. Right, right. That that is going to absorb a lot of people because yeah, that's a lot of meat on the bone for such a kind of a prohibitive favorite. I, that's not the right word, prohibitive favorite, but such a strong favorite in that field. Um, I'm surprised Josh Allen is sitting the, down plus twelve hundred because I think a lot of people will look at this and say, you know, it's risk. It's it's less risky for him. He's got a better supporting cast. He's got a better offensive line, and these these bets tend to uh, attract people who are like trying to find the next big thing. I think in this case, somebody like Allen be the next big thing. So I consider him at plus 1,200, but Mahomes at plus 500 is, is just the probability of hitting is just too high. Yeah, I totally agree. I um, It's interesting that Deshaun Watson is still listed at plus 3,500. <laughs> I don't think I would take that bet at this point. That's that's some – oh, he's going to get traded to the Dolphins and win MVP. Which, I, I, I might take Baker Mayfield at plus 3,500 yeah. at 35 to 1. Yeah, you, you also have to root, be able to root for the person every week. So that kind of like the whole Deshaun thing, I, I can't root for them every week. Oh, I don't yeah, want to make money I think over that. That's a thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
I think Kyler Murray being at plus 1600 is interesting because that's the same as Lamar Jackson and it's better than Prescott, Stafford, or Herbert. I know. I know. Do you and that's think that... the Cowboys and Rams will be better. I mean, we don't think FO does not think the Chargers will be better than the Cardinals this year, but we agree with everyone that the Cowboys and Rams will be better than the Cardinals this year. We could see uh, a scenario where Herbert gets it with like a 5,300 yard season for a team that goes 10 and seven. I mean, that's a, a scenario where he just blows it up statistically. But I think Kyler Murray sitting there is schmuck bait. That's basically what that is. I don't know who would be betting that at this point, uh, but it, it's sitting there almost like an attractive nuisance for a casual fan who, who is expecting him to be better than I think most of us think he'll be in, in year three. Yeah. Let's scroll down to coach of the year. This is wild. What do you think is most wild about the coach of the year odds? Urban Meyer at plus 1,400. Well – I mean, you know, if Jacksonville has a good season, doesn't he win the award? Yeah. I, I mean, let's go down. What, what if if the Falcons have a good season, does Arthur Smith win the award? Yeah. yeah I, I guess I guess we're, we're, we're betting right now on the Jaguars having I, – I know what you're going to say. It's like, well, if they have like a 9-8 and eight season, a lot of times the coach of the year is the guy who takes the surprise team to like the wild card. But are we really anticipating that with with Urban Meyer and, and with the Jacksonville Jaguars? No, I would think the better bet here is, I mean, the the favorite is Brandon Staley at 10 to 1. Yeah. And I think that's that's pretty good. Belichick at 12 to 1, where I think if he turns the Patriots around and puts them back in the playoffs, right. I could definitely see Belichick winning this award. And then the other one I think is Kyle Shanahan at 14 to one. The fact yeah. is people in the media love Kyle Shanahan. Yes. Yeah. And that's the thing we, we have to sort of metagame our colleagues. It's different with MVP where you, everybody kind of sees you have to metagame our colleagues here because it is like the best new artist Grammy where it's somebody who had a hit that you weren't expecting. Uh, the guys, Andrew and Brian. Yeah. One, uh, Brian picked Kyle Shanahan. And Andrew picked Sean Payton, which I guess is interesting. Yeah, if they if they have a big season, and the J- Jameis, you know, tur- they they turn around after uh, Drew Brees, I could see that happening. Yeah, if the Saints have a big season with Winston at quarterback, I could definitely see Payton as the coach of the year. Yeah. I'll tell you right now, like, okay, I, maybe the Jaguars have a better chance of having a good season than than the Jets, but if both of them come out like and go eight and nine or something like that. Robert Soleil is going to get it over over Urban Meyer. I think he's more popular. I think that that's true. Yeah. So so that would that would crush any urban uh, fantasies, urban renewal. I think if you think about who the writers like, it's not Urban Meyer. Right. They like Shanahan and they write like Robert Soleil. Yes. Yeah. He, he's got a couple of buddies from you know from his media gigs and all, but no. In general, our, our group is going to probably go elsewhere again with the assumption that one of these teams has a surprise or a couple of these teams have surprise seasons that are better than you think. It's funny. And another one who could do it is Dan Campbell. Well, that's the funny thing is who the odds think can and can't have surprise seasons. Yes. Because you have like thinking about turnaround teams, the chargers 10 to one, the Jaguars 14 to one, Arthur Smith, you know, Falcons 14 to one, Carolina, Matt rule 16 to one, Vic Fangio, Denver 16 to one, Detroit, Dan Campbell, 40 to one. Yeah. Houston, David Cully, 65 to one. <laughs> right. Right. And I can see Cully, but Campbell, and by the way, you're noticing, you know, Kevin Clark just did a thing on Campbell. The rehabilitation of Dan Campbell's personality is underway here. And I think it's warranted at this point. A lot of us like me are kind of like going with the cement head routine here. It's we've been saying this over and over again. It's not, it's not unfeasible for that team to wind up seven, eight, nine wins. I'm going to pause for you. Uh, Greg is joining us now, so I'm going to let Philip know to bring Greg in on the video. There we are. Greg, how are you doing today? Good. What's up? We're just talking about coach of the year odds. They uh, People who make the odds do not think David Cully is winning coach of the year. (laughs) (laughs) I would be in that camp, too. (laughs) Poor David Cully. But our man Belichick has the second best odds at 12 to 1. I think this could be a decent chance to uh for him to win it. I mean, if if he contends for the division or perhaps wins the division with a rookie quarterback, 
you know, yeah. I think he's always been handicapped. They're like, well, he has Tom Brady or, you know, they're always good. And so right. he gets mentioned, but it's been, I think it's been a while since he's actually won the award, but yeah, doing it, having a really successful season with a rookie quarterback that could get him another one. Is that, so, a, is that a Rutgers R I see in the background there, sir? That is. Yes. No Rutgers game tonight because campus is underwater, but let's represent. Love it. There you go. I'm class of 97. That's, that's actually my wife's. A uh, letter from four years on the golf, women's golf team and being a two-year captain and stuff like that. So I try to make it look like it's uh, it's my R, but it's really her R. But we both graduated from there. Uh, I'm a I'm a I'm a Rutgers dad. There's a hat on Daddy's head where all the money goes. There and, you go. Uh, we're representing. <laughs> nice. Unfortunately, yes, Rutgers is underwater right now, as are yes. a lot of things in New Jersey. Uh, we we escaped. I I got a flash flood warning on my phone this morning, but I think here in Massachusetts we escaped the uh, worst of it all. My neighbor's mowing the lawn, as you can hear. So <laughs> that tells you we, we did pretty okay here. It's dry enough to mow the lawn during the Twitch cast. Um. So uh, Greg, for folks who know, he's written for Football Outsiders Almanac in the past. His website is bostonsportsjournal.com. So he is plugged into everything Boston sports and in particular covering the New England Patriots who made the biggest news of the week by far. Everybody was shocked when they cut Cam Newton on Tuesday morning. So I'm curious, Greg, how much did you see Mac Jones winning the quarterback job coming? And then how much did you see Cam Newton getting cut coming? Uh, well, Mac Jones winning the job in my mind, he clearly won the job. It was just a matter of was Bill Belichick going to actually name him the starter and go forward with the rookie quarterback. I, I did not know the answer to that question. And, um, I certainly saw the way he handled thing. I mean, I was at every practice, you know, all the joint practices, all the games. Um, and so I saw everything, you know, off season workouts, everything. Uh, I was, I was not surprised at all that he won the job. I thought he clearly won the job. Um, as far as cam being cut, I did have thoughts about that. I mean, I, I was telling people, you know, but, but I do, you know, Felger and Maz, I do a lot of appearances in, in, in New England. And, you know, I was telling people because it did, it looked like the way Belichick handled it, that he was going to go with Cam Newton as the starter. But I thought Mac Jones would be, would replace him somewhat soon, possibly to shorten the season for Mac Jones. I mean, because right. he's already looks like he's dealing with a left knee injury. And to go from Alabama, I look back at last year, and last year was a little bit different with COVID, but. You know, so they played 13 games. They had about a three-week break in the middle of the season. They had about a three-week break between the SEC championship game and the playoffs. They had seven games that were blowouts, so he probably didn't f finish those games. There were probably games where he wasn't even touched, even though in the biggest games he was under a lot of pressure, and, and that was something that impressed me watching his film coming out. Uh, so I wasn't sure whether Belichick would just outright release Newton. I certainly had those thoughts, um, but that was impossible to predict. But I, I, at the end of the day, that, that Mac Jones is the starter and Cam Newton is gone is not a total surprise to me. What did you see like day in, day out in practice that convinced you that Jones was winning that had won that job? Well, Mike, I think the biggest thing, and you guys, you guys have known me for years, so you sort of know the way I watch the game. And and I'm, you know, I'm one of those film guys. And um, and you know, last year, to be honest, was a struggle watching the Patriots on film. I mean, to go from, you know, look, I, I did my penance covering the Dolphins way back in the day, post Dan Marino. Um, <laughs> so I saw a lot of different, you know, I had to go through the Joey Harrington and Dante Culpepper and Gus Farratt years, AJ Feely. Um, you know, but I also covered Green Bay, so I got to see Favre. I got to see the beginning of Rodgers, and then to go to Brady for the you know the previous decade was um, you know just tremendous to watch on film. And last year was just rough. And the thing was, I was a I was a Cam fan. I was in favor of them signing him. I wrote it before they signed him that I thought he could fit here, that they could play winning football with him. And uh, I was patient with him throughout the year, but I. I know the way the Patriots operate and, and you know, you need to, you need to keep improving. Like you can't just stay still and you certainly can't regress. And by the time they got to that Texans game through that Texans game, I was done with Newton. I was done. He had not <laughs> progressed. 
He was still slow. He's not making pre-snap reads. He's not even feeling like where the pressure's coming from. And in this offense, you just need those sort of intangibles to really operate it. And and that Cam Newton was operating this offense on basically see it, throw it. Um, you know, not a whole lot of anticipation. Certainly no really pre-snap idea what he's going to do with the ball. It just it hamstrings what the offense is. The offense at its core should have all the answers to what a defense presents. Post pre-snap, post-snap, whatever. If you if you can operate the controls in in, in this offense that Josh McDaniels and Charlie Weiss and in you know Bill O'Brien and all these guys who built on top of it um what they put into this offense and to me it was clear last year that Cam Newton was not going to be able to get to those controls and to me, it didn't make much sense, you know, going forward with him. Uh, Matt, so once I saw Mac Jones, and I was in favor of him before the draft, I, I you know, I wrote a column saying that the Mac Jones hype was real. Um, I did not buy into the popular storyline about it's Alabama. They're all talented. They're all wide open, you know, this and that. Not if you watch the film. It was there on film. First day in minicamp with the Patriots, I was impressed. First day of training camp. I don't know if Gasper will remember this, but they were doing a red zone drill and I just turned to Chris Gasper and I said, it's over. He's winning the job. It's just, it's, <laughs> it's, it's this timing. It's most of it. Mike is the timing is, is mm-hmm. the pre-snap knowing, having an idea what the defense is going to do and then getting the ball out on time. And I constantly throughout um, camp practices, I would use a stopwatch. I used to use it, you know, for a punting competition, but now I was using for a quarterback competition. I would measure every snap to throw. And Mac Jones was clearly ahead of the games and ahead of Cam. He was clearly making the right decisions most of the time. And for me, I just thought, if this kid is here at this point, like three, four weeks into his NFL career, give him the keys and see where he can go with this. So right. those are the things that stood out to me. Hmm. It's interesting what you said about a red zone drill, because that brings up one of the ideas I think that people in the analytics community might have suggested was, would it make sense to keep Newton around as a short yardage and red zone weapon and like bring him in on like third and ones or goal line situations? But if you feel like Jones already has a handle on being in the red zone, then the added running value of having Newton in those situations is not necessarily as large as you might think it is. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. And I heard that chatter and I certainly had those thoughts like, you know, look, you give basically run QB power. I mean, when you look back at, you know, the Panthers in 2015, when Cam won the MVP and they went to the Super Bowl, uh, I remembered I studied that offense a lot that year because I did a big cover story for Sports Illustrated going into that Super Bowl and about how basically their running game from Mike Shula was basically it was an old school running game. They, they, They ran everything from you know, the Redskins counter tray <laughs> to the power sweep of the Packers to all, all sorts of classic power football plays. They just dressed it up differently with an athletic quarterback, a guy who was in his prime at that time. And so you could say, okay, if they run QB power and they're pulling the guard and, um, you know, things like that, okay, it could make sense. But all right, well, what if you need to throw, you know, in the red zone? <laughs> I mean, Cam has... In my mind, the biggest drawback on Cam, and I, st- I still think he fits certain offenses, but the biggest drawback is just Cam is just up. Even at his best in this offense, he was a half a step late, in my opinion, with everything. And and in the red zone, that timing is, is even more important. It's interesting because there's been a lot of feeling about maybe his shoulder never fully got healthy, but your shoulder doesn't affect your timing. No, I, I agree with that. I didn't have a problem with Cam's arm. Uh, yeah. I had a little bit of a problem with his feet because, yeah. you know, the people who haven't been watching, and I heard from a lot of these, you know, the Twitter trolls out there who, you know, when I said, like, my preferred room for the Patriots, and I said this after the Eagles got Gardner Minshew for, like, nothing, was Mac Jones, Gardner Minshew, and Brian Hoyer. That would be my room, of course. <laughs> you, know, you get people who come I, I out would, and call I you a racist. Knowing that this was coming, I would have loved to have had Minshew because I'm I'm not a big Brian Hoyer guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I I understand that, and I don't think the Patriots are after the Chiefs game last year. They basically uh, buried him after that, and I think he's basically there to be you know Mac Jones's 
tutor. And, um, I, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Minshew, but I just think that, uh, I, I just think that, you know, Mac, I just don't think Cam Newton fit where this offense is going. And you're right. I didn't have a problem with his arm. I think he does fit other offenses more like, you know, and I was just listening to Chris Sims's podcast, and I think I think uh, Phil Sims made a good point about like I do think he fits Atlanta. You know, with uh, with what they <laughs> did with Tannehill. You know, Tannehill's not a you can't draw put Cam Newton back in the shotgun spread and expect him to operate it. You need him under center. You need play action. You need the run element. A lot of the stuff they did with Tannehill. That's why I don't think, despite some similarities between Dak and Cam, uh, that. Cam Newton is not a fit for Mike McCarthy's offense at all. No, no, you're right. You want play action, seven step drop guy flying down the field, uh, you know, 50 yard bomb and then something underneath you can go to and usually wind up with a six protection there. So, you know, if Mm -hmm. there's a a rush, it's going to come a little late. He's going to still be able to run away from, I think that would suggest he's not a good fit for Baltimore either. Like I've seen that suggested the idea of Cam Newton is a mobile quarterback. Lamar Jackson is a mobile quarterback. Like maybe he should be backing up Lamar Jackson, but he's such a, he's such a different kind of mobile quarterback. It's not about elusiveness. It's yeah, so and I, I think that's Murray a great point. Or Lamar Jackson. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point, Aaron. And and you know, one of the things where I think Cam Newton's effectiveness dwindled last year in the second half of the year was teams realized I don't really care if Cam Newton runs anymore. He doesn't have the same legs. Right. He doesn't have the same power. I remember, and and therefore, it, and he's not. I will say he got better at executing the play action better this year in this camp. Last year, and, and this was a concern of mine coming into his New England tenure, watching, there were some, you know, he's not a good play faker. This year he got better at it. But, you know, I remember distinctly there was a play last year, the second matchup against the Dolphins, where I think it was like second and short or something like that. Some place, some yardage where play action would be effective. And, Cam Newton, you know, went through the play action fake and the Dolphins linebackers just went back to their drops. They didn't even think about the run. And to me, I, at that point, I was like, well, what, I don't understand the point of this. It's it, none of it is working, but I do think his legs and I talked to some NFL people after the season and they just said, you know, Cam's legs aren't the same. And right. he was a little bit heavy last year. I do think he trimmed down. I think he was a little bit better, but he's no longer the dual threat Cam Newton that you remember from 2015. He's not going to escape in these like miraculous scrambles that you'll see some of the younger yeah. guys do. It's still, yeah, if you run some kind of read option, he, he's got, he's a big dude. He can go fast in a straight line. He can power it up. It's amazing what you're saying about the play action because my memory of prime Cam was the mesh in the backfield that would like take two seconds. Mm-hmm. He would put that mesh out there with like a D'Angelo Williams, Jonathan Stewart, and he would yank it back at the next minute and run or throw. But I think what we have to remember, this is a dwindling memory. The guy we're talking about here is 2015, maybe 2017 camp. You say year after year after year, oh, maybe this year is the year he's 100% healthy in this, that, and the other thing. Clearly, 2021 was not that year. Absolutely. Absolutely correct, Mike. So the last question then is, I guess, is the locker room impact. Do you agree with the idea that people have talked about they kind of had to cut Cam because you didn't want to have a split locker room? And even though you'd rather have Newton as your backup than Hoyer, they needed to make sure that the locker room was all completely behind Mac Jones. Or do you think they just feel like Newton is so far gone that there really isn't that much of a difference between him and Hoyer as far as being the backup? Well, I do think that, in my opinion, Cam Newton was won the backup role. Um, the reason that he is not here any longer, I think that um, – I don't think it's the locker room thing. Um I think it's related to that, but I, I don't think there there was no split in the locker room. I mean, you, just being at practice and watching the way all the guys reacted to uh, to Mac Jones, uh, you know, told me enough. And, and you know, a lot of their words have been great about him. And and I don't think the guys were the guys who have been around. And the you know, this was my point long ago when Mac came in, and they're like, you know, why is Cam here? I said, look, the guys on the team are going to know. You know they're going to know who won the job, and they know that Mac won the job, and Cam would be the backup. Now, you know, does having Cam Newton around take up some oxygen and things like that from you know media and other fans and stuff like that if Mac is struggling? 
you know, maybe a little bit. I mean, but I do like the I do like the move by Belichick to, you know, basically burn the boats and just move <laughs> on. Say we're going we're going back in time. We're going back to our old offense fully and we're going to have a quarterback room that's in alignment whether that's you know Brian Hoyer and Garrett Gilbert right now even though I think that that practice squad uh position is going to be interchangeable I think we could see a bunch of guys come in who are like Garrett Gilbert I do think that Jared Stidham who if people remember I mean last offseason when people were talking up Jared Stidham I said I told them I said it's not Jared Stidham he's not going to be the guy and but I do think from what I know that Jared Stidham before his latest back injury, he did earn more respect inside the building. I think they are more open to Jared Stidham being a factor. And so in my mind, I think in their mind, they think it's Mac Jones, Brian Hoyer, and after week six, Jared Stidham, and we'll see whether he can win the number two job or not. So let me ask you about the other big news of the week for the Patriots, because this is really important. Folks who read Football Outsiders know I've been really high on the Patriots playoff chances because of the defense, not the offense. Because in case Mm -hmm. you haven't seen from the chapter of the book, they have the biggest increase incoming talent on defense of any team in the last 18 years. When you count Hightower coming back, plus all the free agents that they signed. The problem is you now take Stephon Gilmore out of that for at least a few weeks. So Stephon Gilmore goes on PUP. How much is Gilmore's situation about an injury and how much is it about him being unhappy about his contract? <laughs> What's funny, Aaron, is I remember you and I conversing last year about basically, wasn't it the opposite for the it Patriots exactly last year? the opposite last year. <laughs> and, and, I, and I kind of poo-pooed it. Using the most talent, yep. Yeah, uh, I, and I kind of poo-pooed it. I was like, yeah, they'll be able to – scheme around it and whatever run the ball won't be that big of a deal. before covid though because then once covid took high time yeah that's true. away that was a little ridiculous yeah yeah that, yeah that's true um but you know i think it, it last year was a great point by you guys i think it's a great point again um and, and it's a and it's a very valid point about stefan gilmore's importance to this defense and what they have out there which is basically jc jackson jonathan jones i don't know if i've seen him take a snap on the outside um Mm. at all um who is their second best corner or best corner uh but he doesn't go outside for whatever reason and so i don't know who the hell the third cornerback is now um Mm -hmm. you know without with gilmore on the shelf Mm -hmm. uh how much do i think it was the contract versus the injury. Look, everybody's reporting different things. I, I, I can, you know, Ian Rappaport said he won't be healthy till weeks three and four. I, I could just tell you this. Look, the Patriots didn't pass him on his physical. Were they covering him so he didn't have to incur fines? Possibly. I don't know. Uh, I'll just say this. If Stefan Gilmore thought he was going to get paid, and apparently he didn't just want, he doesn't just want a small bump for this year. He wants a big bump, and I think he wants to become a free agent after this year. If he wanted that without getting on the field after a, t- a surgery to repair a torn quad and prove himself, then I'm on the Patriots' side on this. Normally, yeah. I'm with the players. They should get everything they can. Right. But as opposed to Jamal Adams and these other guys who finished the year last year, Stephon Gilmore had a down year, and he was hurt. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to give him any more money. So in my mind... For the first six weeks, um, I'm game planning around it. I would try to go out there and trade for a cornerback. Anybody want Chase Winovich? You can, you know, let's do a little swap here. Um, And so once, and Stefan Gilmore has to come back and he has to play well to get paid after this season. So hopefully for the Patriots sake, they are able to figure out the first six weeks. Stefan Gilmore comes back, is his usual self, and and they have a great defense for the rest of the year. I, I just think that – I think the injury is a factor. I think the court, contract is a factor. I just don't know how much is which, but I'm on board with how the Patriots have handled this because I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not giving an injured player any more money until he proves he's healthy to me, especially I at be- his age. I believe the replacement on the outside for him is probably Jalen Mills, a yes. player Mike knows very well yeah. from Philly. <laughs> who was a very different player as an outside cornerback than he was last year when he was like an all-purpose, like let's move him all over the lineup. He's more of an all-purpose-y guy, I think. And Mm -hmm. you also brought on Sean Wade. And what I would say when you talk about trade, 
that cornerback ain't out there. Nobody's got a cornerback to spare right now. If you look at some of the things like yeah. Butler retiring and some of the other guys going on IR right now, nobody's got that cornerback to spare. So you're you're going to be rolling. I mean, at least you've got Jones and Jackson so you can start and you can try to figure out where you're going to put Wade and Mills. But it's, it is interesting because, um, you know, the model that uh, Gilmore should have been following, Xavier Howard wanted the new contract. It was three years left and everything. He did show up for camp and kind of go start doing his thing, mm-hmm. and then they rewarded him. So the idea that, oh, well, the Dolphins are doing that, but I think I'll play hardball with the Patriots. That right. doesn't seem like a logical approach to trying to get that new deal. Yeah, when 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 he's hurt. I mean, that's what I right. just don't get. I mean, I'm all for every player getting his – and Stefan's in a weird place where his next big contract is probably going to be his last big contract because I think he's going to be – 31 by the Super Bowl. I'm not sure if, if I'm at 30 or 31. And so he's getting down to it. And so I understand. And, you know, the best thing for him is to come have a big year, become a free agent. Somebody will pay him just because, just like you said, Mike, um, there's a dearth of good cornerbacks in this league. I mean, I know the Saints have been looking for how long for, for cornerback right. help. And, yep. and I think that as far as the Patriots in their, you know, number two, you know, cornerback. Yeah, it looks like Mills, who did not play with a lot of confidence this summer. Uh, Jawan Williams, who, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's just funny. I mean, just saying it out loud. Between between uh, Jawan Williams and Jalen Mills, you're talking about two guys who are probably, and Sean Wade, okay, mm-hmm. who are probably going to be better safeties than they are yeah. cornerbacks, and that's yeah. what the Patriots are sorting through uh, to figure out the rest of their defense. The old Otis Smith role where you're kind of the guy who <laughs> plays deep as the second corner and tries not to get burnt and waits for the mistake and picks it off. Yeah, I agree. There's not corners available. There was a rumor going around on Twitter this morning that Denver wanted to make Bryce Callahan available. The so first guy. of all, it doesn't make much sense given what Derek Klassen said about how Callahan in the slot is so important to Fangio's scheme. And second of all, He's like Jonathan Jones. He's a slot guy. He's not an outside guy. So if the Patriots are looking for an outside corner, he doesn't solve the problem. That's a team that has a lot of corners, though. If you wanted to try and make a deal, because I can see Ronald, it again. Maybe they can get Ronald Darby instead. Got, yeah, go get Darby, and then you can yeah, reunite the Eagles uh, secondary from uh, <laughs> So l- let me ask you one other question before we let you go, talking about the Patriots defense. Matt Judon, or as I like to call him, Red Sleeves, because that's the only thing. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, we're going to ask you two more questions. So first of all, okay. Red Sleeves. Red Sleeves has obviously shown up huge, right? He looks amazing. Mm-hmm. Of the other new guys, who do you think is the most important new guy other than Judon? On defense? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, Judon, look, I, I'll just say this. I mean, I think he's been good, and he's certainly been impactful in the games. Uh, I will say I, I wasn't blown away with his, his practices this summer. Hmm. Um, you know, I still he's a good player. I mean, and he's going to be a good player for this team. Uh, the other guy, the guys who I think are going to be most impactful on defense, um, you know, if I had to pick one guy, because you're really talking what? Godchow, uh, Henry Anderson, Anderson, Mills, Harvey Lange. Yeah, I, I mean, I love Anderson, and I'm glad they kept him. Like some of his preseason usage, you were like, oh my God, are they going to cut this guy? Because he gives them coverage all over the line, and he was great this summer. I'm glad that he stuck in, in you know, quite frankly, I'd rather have him on the team than Dietrich Wise at um, three, four defensive end. But whatever, Belichick, he's Belichick's binky. He's going to be here forever. <laughs> and I love Dietrich Wise. He's a, he's a good player. I think he's a misfit for the scheme. But uh, and he's a great locker room guy. So I understand. But let's be serious. But it, out of all those guys, I think the guy who's going to be most impactful is Christian Barmore, uh, who Rookie. dropped to the second round for. Um, you know, for certain, I would. How would I turn this? Certain intangibles that some of the, some of the teams thought he might lack coming to the NFL. But I got to be honest with you, since he's hit the ground running at the Patriots, he's been tremendous. And you know, normally you see with an interior rusher like him that that's all they do with him during his rookie year. But it didn't take very long where they've thrown him out there in base and practice and things like that. Mm-hmm. So that tells me that. He, he he's he's impressing them behind the scenes as well and 
all summer he's been a force. The, none of none of the joint practices could the other team, the Eagles, the Giants. Of course, the Giants can't block anybody. Um, but <laughs> but he's been a force all summer. And it, I, look, I think they, I at this point they got a steal. Um, we'll see how you know how his career turns out. But I think at least for a rookie, I think Christian Barmore is going to be very impactful this year. This is the last question from useful title in our chat. You watched the joint practices. Was it true that the Eagles won the joint practices? Because that seems like a little bit of a weird spin from Sport Talk Radio, given that in the actual game, the Patriots shut out the Eagles, mostly backups. At least the there was really only one real day of practice. The second day was more situational stuff. And but the what? Yeah, and I wrote this. I said the Patriots got their ass kicked. They did. Really? They got their ass kicked on both sides of the ball, all over the place, against the Eagles. And then in the game, the Eagles didn't play anybody. So that that was the reason for the lopsided well, score. The Patriots starting receivers, I, but the defense was like all backups. Yeah, I, I and gotta, yeah, the defense was mostly backups. But I, Jalen um, Jalen Hurts looked like. You know Patrick Mahomes against the Patriots defense in that practice. Uh, trust me, I was stunned. I didn't think that was Joe Flacco looked good in that practice too. And uh, now I was told by people around the Patriots, don't read too much into it. Like you know, we were vanilla on offense, we're vanilla on defense. Like, don't read too much into it. But I'm just, it, it, I'm just telling you, the Eagles kicked the Patriots' ass that one. I got, I got they a did. totally different read from that. The thing I got, and I was watching them. I was up uh, on the on the steps there. Was oh yeah, I the saw court. you. There. Yeah, the Cam, the Cam and Mac were not playing. Cam was not playing well, and that Mac yeah. had a good hot early start and then started throwing picks at the end of the practice. But that in general, like what you could see out of the trenches, I thought I thought the Patriots were winning. So that's why yeah, I, I thought, thought that was- I thought the 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 line stuff, the one on one stuff. I think the Patriots definitely held their own. But I thought in the team periods, mm-hmm. you know, in my opinion, I thought I thought the Eagles were the better team. And trust me, I was very surprised by that. <laughs> NFL philosophy says, by the way, with the secondary that they have, the Patriots are going to have to use everything they've got to go after the quarterback. Absolutely. He's he's 100% right, and that's been my argument, which is, you know, yeah, the Patriots, personnel-wise, you you wonder about them. And, and look, their whole scheme is predicated on playing man-to-man. Like, we know, we know Jackson can do it. We know Jones can do it. We know Gilmore can do it. But can Mills, can Jawan Williams, can – well, Sean Wade, I don't think is going to get a time get time anytime soon. No, that's a that's um, a trade for the future. Yeah, de- yeah, definitely. And I think he's a good football player. It's just, you know, where does he fit? And they'll figure that out. But I, yes, their pressure is going to be hugely important in the first six weeks. They are going to need to sell out a bit with the, with the pass rush, and I think we'll get an early indication. Are they really all that much better with you know D- Judon and uh, and Barmore and you know, Kyle Van Noy, you know, I, I was a big fan of him when he was here the first time this time around. I don't I don't know if the Miami experience sapped some of his confidence, um, which w- when he was with the Patriots, he certainly didn't lack. But mm-hmm. he, he did not look like the same player on the field um, to me, you know, is I think Hightower's fine. I Josh Uche is the guy they who is really going to pop this year on the preseason yeah. um, broadcast a lot. Yeah, he was he was really good this summer. That's why he's the reason. And you know, they drafted Ronnie Perkins. He's the reason why I'm like I I don't know how Chase Winovich sees the field. I don't like what who are you going to take off the field? And they love to use their safeties. I think Duggar Phillips and McCordy are all going to be on the field at the same time a lot, especially in sub packages. So uh, yeah, I think Uche and Judon. In my opinion, it's interesting, Aaron. And I asked this of. Uh, one of the Patriots coaches the other day. Oh, I think it was Gerard Mayo. I said, because if you look at it, because they're really more of a 3-4 team now than they have been in many years. And if you're looking traditionally, you know, you got Judon on one side, you have Uche on the other, you have Hightower in the middle. They still love Bentley. Bentley's been out there all summer. Mm. Where's Kyle Kyle Van Noy playing? I mean, I assume he's going to split time with Bentley and be inside, and and they'll get up some creative packages against certain personnel groupings, but – you know, just in a base three, four, I don't know if Kyle Van Noy's in it right now hmm. and he's a good football player. Yeah. So they're deep in the front seven. And yeah, the problem is with defense is that it's a weakness system where the problem is your weakness. And uh, 
and they have one at second corner. Greg Bedard, yep. bostonsportsjournal.com. Thank you so much for joining us today and talking about the Patriots. We'll check in with you during the season. I really appreciate it, man. Sounds good. Had a blast. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Now we are going to bring in Parker Fleming, who just entered the waiting room, and we're going to talk some college football. Mike is going to have to leave us at some point. Yes. When Parker comes in, I think I'll make my exit. Hello, Parker. He's coming. We're going to have Parker come in and say hello. He's coming. I'm off to do dad stuff, ladies and gentlemen, but uh, you will see me again next week. Yes, Rutgers' dad is off to do high school dad stuff. (laughs) Yes. Uh, There you are. Hello, Parker. Hey, how's it going, guys? Hey, it's my first time talking to our man Parker on the Twitch show or a podcast or anything else. I mean, this is a podcast and a Twitch show because it comes a podcast later. But now we're going to really confuse poor Philip, the producer, because we're going to have Mike say goodbye. I I leave you in excellent beard hands, ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) Parker. Seriously, I'm a little ashamed here. (laughs) I've always kept mine so short. Increase your advice is do do nothing and the beard happens. So (laughs) (laughs) all right, Mike. We'll see Mike later next week. All right, now it's me and Parker. And it's uh we'll have to fix your uh the little name below the title there, I believe. It says Mike's name, but we'll we'll get that fixed. Ah, there we go. And uh we're gonna talk some college football. And as Mike pointed out to me when we were prepping the show. My God, college football starts off with a freaking bang this year. It really like, does. They've done a good job. Week, this first week is, and um, Preston Pack, the new writer of Seventh Day Adventure, makes this point in the intro for tomorrow's column. But the problem last year was no out-of-conference games, right? So out, no out-of-conference games was a problem for, one, doing stats, because you didn't know how strong anybody was, because you didn't have interconnectivity. And two, just for the sport, because all those great interconference games that didn't exist. And so the week one is suddenly starting out not only with some big, big 10 conference games, but with some just really huge interconference games like Clemson, Georgia and Alabama, Miami. Yeah, it's re- it's really exciting, and and the thing about the um, conference games last year too, and kind of the interconference stuff is, I mean, I just basically had to rely on priors, you know, like what did 2019? And so you're making a lot of guesses. Um, it was funny, like bowl season was kind of uh, refreshing because it was like, oh, we couldn't get any of these non-conference matchups. But yeah, I remember last year, Aaron, that Thursday night Central Arkansas UAB game. I feel like the entire world sat down and watched this random FCS game on uh, on a Thursday night to kick off the season. And because uh, we're so, so hungry for college right? football. Yeah. And this and this year, man, like this entire weekend, I could start watching tonight and be, you know, all the way, all the way through. Um, and so like Boise UCF tonight, I think is one of the, I, I love to see these G5 teams kind of play each other. Um, and and then, you know, you've got really, really solid games like Ohio State, Minnesota as well. So a, a, a full slate kind of starting out tonight and watchable games tomorrow night. And then Saturday is just jam packed. Dude, I don't even watch that much college football. And even I watched UAB beat Jacksonville State last <laughs> night. <laughs> yeah, we were, doing, we were doing the podcast and I had it on in the background. I was all about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, so let's talk about, speaking of this weekend's big games, right? Clemson, Alabama, obviously, these are two of your main contenders. Who are this year's top contenders for the college football playoff? So I think that that kind of comes to the philosophical question of how many teams are actually ever in the running for the for the college football playoff. And, and I really think that number is, is six or seven, right? So obviously, you have Alabama because you can't, you just can't rule out Nick Saban. Uh, you obviously have Clemson, obviously have Ohio State. Those are kind of almost inarguable, even though all three of those teams are transitioning to new quarterbacks, even though all three of those teams might have um, have, lo- have lost some really good skill players and might have some potential weaknesses. You think about Ohio State's secondary, Clemson, their interior line, um, Alabama, you know, maybe their wide receiver unit isn't as good as it was last year. And I, I think all three of those teams are firmly in the running. And then the question becomes, okay, who else is plausibly there? I think this is the year that Oklahoma has had circled for a really long time with Spencer Rattler taking that kind of second step. Um, it'll be, you know, he'll be a lot more mature this year. I think their wide receiver unit will be, will be nice um, and, and deep, even if, you know, they only have, what, two running backs on their roster right now. And so I think Oklahoma is your fourth team that's absolutely in it. If you go to the Big Ten, 
you know, you could say you're right. There's a world where Michigan can win all their games. I don't, I don't think they're going to, I don't think they're feasibly in it, but the other team in the, in the big 10 that really, really stands out to me is, is Penn state who had a down year last year, lost a fluky game against Indiana that honestly probably served as a little bit of like a, a morale <laughs> killer there. Uh, and again, they probably should have won because of that call. And, uh, and so I, I think they will be a lot better this year. I think they've got a good, interesting transfer along the defensive line that should Im- improve their kind of disruptiveness and, and a wide receiver unit is a little better. Um, and, and, and Wisconsin. So I say both of them, uh, you know, Wisconsin's my other team. I think they're playing an eliminator game this weekend. Cause you kind of have that cross divisional big 10 game. And so that right there puts me at, at six or seven teams. Um, who could plausibly be in there? And then you start talking about fringe contenders. Do you believe Iowa State can get there? Do you believe Sam Howell and North Carolina have enough? Oregon, USC, are either of them going to break through? Washington's kind of a dark horse. So that right there is kind of the, the plausible set of who are my main contenders. You kind of have that core. Um, Brian. It's, uh, it's like three teams that are almost assured. Yeah. In a rotating fourth spot. Like it's been that way the last few years, right? It's been Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, and fourth team. Yeah. Uh, Brian Fremo said uh, the the way he put it, I really liked. He said, you know, about five teams are competing for three spots and then maybe seven teams, including some of those five teams are competing for the fourth spot. And so you really kind of have, you know, uh, uh, just a small handful. It, it brings up one of the things we've talked about when we talk about college football a lot, especially for our NFL audience, which is that even though the players change so much more often because of graduation, College football teams are actually more consistent and easier to predict than NFL teams because the recruiting is so important and the same teams do well at recruiting year after year after year. They, they do. And, and recruiting success breeds recruiting success, right? Because you go and you have a, a five-star wide receiver be the first one to come to your team and he goes off and goes to the NFL and that gives you brand recognition. You're known as, you know, the awful uh, in terminal de- debates about who is actually wide receiver university or whatever, but recruits pay attention to that and where guys are getting drafted and who's developing players. And so that kind of builds on it on itself. And then, you know, condition, uh, additionally, the element in college football that I think is so interesting. So your, your NFL guys, you know, they're all about the, we're talking about the cap and we're working on these, Hey, what are, what are the financial implications here and there? College football is, is a really interesting game of the guys who are really good are really good at projecting a four-year cycle and which players are going to last all four years, which players are not. So you think about Pat Fitzgerald at Northwestern, for instance, he's a four-year cycle guy. They were great last year. They're probably going to be bad this year, just the way that his kind of college uh, collegiate cycle breaks out. But then Alabama, you know, they're, they're, they're more on that two-year cycle and, and kind of uh, recruiting in a way a little bit more strategically for that. My, my model to predict um, games and, and year to year, I, I include a, a coach effect and a program effect just to account for, you know, there are imbalances in facilities and travel and investment and staff that uh, exist at the college level that are so larger than any kind of imbalances in training staff or strength and conditioning at the NFL level. Yeah, it's uh, absolutely. So talk about the teams that are not necessarily going to be competing for the playoffs, but that you think are going to be really fun and interesting to watch this year, like underappreciated the, the one problem with the college football playoff is it brings everyone's attention towards the college football playoff when part of the fun of college football is all the different conference races and all the different rivalries and all the things that you don't have to go 10 and one to enjoy. Right, right. Well, and that's uh, funny, you know, thinking about the one foot and bounds column on Monday morning and you and Vince being like, hey, maybe don't write about 13 G5 games this week. Like we, we can talk <laughs> some about the playoff. And some about the other teams, but we have to talk about the playoff. Um, yeah, so I think there's actually a really interesting middle class. You know, speaking of G5, you'll get a team like Cincinnati, um, who who returns almost all their production, was really, really talented last year, gave Georgia a good game at the end of the year. Coastal Carolina was really, really fun last year. Um, their offense is extremely novel, and so we kind of have a nice – they'll be interesting to follow because we'll have a nice test case for how much does novelty kind of help an offense now that people have tape uh, on Coastal Carolina – um, right there in the Sun Belt, I think that uh, the Coastal Carolina's main competition for the Sun Belt is going to be Louisiana. Billy Napier, very obviously a coach who knows what he's doing, waiting for the right job to come open and has a lot of experience. That'll be a really fun G5 team. Um, in terms of kind of other fringe Power 5 teams that might be exciting, uh, I think Steve Sarkeesian at Texas is someone you can't rule out. His offensive knowledge 
his experience and the fact that Texas has great talent, even if they've underperformed the last couple of years, lends them to be a really, really interesting team. I think if you go out to the West Coast, you can look at a team like Arizona State. They only played four, four games last year. One of those was a ritual sacrifice of Arizona, 70 to seven, but Jaden Daniels is a really, really dynamic runner and, and a passer and their offense is really exciting. And so I think that's a team who, who I don't believe will sniff the playoff, but is really, really exciting to, to follow. You start going down the line and you start saying, okay, I'm, you know, who, who's going to, who's going to break out. And, and, and some of these teams are just interesting because they're stylistically weird. You think about Arkansas's offense with KJ Jefferson taking over for, for Felipe Franks. Um, I think it's really interesting. A lot of people assumed that Franks was good at Arkansas just because of the system. Franks has looked okay in the preseason for, uh, for Atlanta and, and might win that. Yep. Yeah, that backup job there. And so uh, that that's like, okay, well, maybe KJ Jefferson could do something in Arkansas. What is it about the system that. at Arkansas? What's unique about it? Yeah, so the, the offensive coordinator at Arkansas is um, Kendall Bryles. And uh, I, I won't say too much about his history other than he's steeped in a very particular brand of offense uh, that happened in the 2011 to 2015 Big 12 that a lot of people talked about basketball on grass. And so he is going to do a lot of space. He's going to do a lot of motion. Um, Aaron, they do this so, this play I love so much. Um, they they run an orbit motion, and then they run speed option out of it, and it just looks so odd. Um, but it, but it's pretty good. It's a good way to kind of get your guy outside. Speed and, motion to the speed option to the orbit guy or to another back to the orbit guy. They run like a pistol or a, or a shotgun, and they'll they'll have the orbit guy come in from the slot, go behind the running back. The running back will take a fake, or he'll just crash and block. And then they'll run speed option to the orbit guy outside. It's so odd. And they sling the ball. Speaking of, uh, speaking of Felipe Franks, highest completion rate on balls, 20 plus yards downfield last year. Um, so they were just absolutely going deep, a really fun offense. Um, and so that one I think is, is, is another really, really fun one to look at. One that I have circled um, that I think is a little less sexy, but it's still interesting is, is Kansas State. You know, they lost to Arkansas State, a Sunbelt team to start last year. And their quarterback got hurt in their third game. Looked like it was a mess. Chris Kleiman was at North Dakota State, won a bunch of championships, knows how to run a successful program. They have a ton of returning talent. And uh, for the NFL fans, looking at a guy like Deuce Vaughn, who is an explosive running back, one of those kind of, um, you know, Percy Harvin, Darren Sproles kind of utility men who's all over the place. He'll be really fun to watch. I think with a really good offensive line, a competent, healthy Skylar Thompson at quarterback, Kleiman's know-how in a full offseason, Vaughn is poised to be a really explosive player for Kansas State. Let me ask you, talking about returning talent, you, you talk about returning talent and what it means this year. Like, How does 2020's weirdness screw up trying to predict 2021 when it comes to things like interconference play and returning talent and all the things that are different this year than they usually are? The biggest, if, uh, the biggest issue with returning talent or the biggest reason it matters is the asymmetry, right? And so Insofar as uh, Bill Conley, for instance, is one of the guys who kind of got that stat out there and started thinking about, let's look at returning production, not just starters or snaps. And so that's really good in a normal year to identify, for instance, I mentioned Northwestern, hey, they're at the top of their development cycle. They're bringing everybody back from next year. They're pretty experienced. This is this is going to be a good team because they're going to be more experienced than most of their opponents, right? So that asymmetry in college football is really what gets you um, kind of the advantage. A couple of things, not only 2020's weirdness and the fact that um, everyone in college football got an extra year of eligibility, 2020 didn't count against your clock. And so you have a whole mess of super seniors. Um, I believe, Aaron, that the median returning starters on a college football team this year is 17 out of 22. So just absolutely remarkable. That's better than the NFL. Everyone across the board is bringing back a ton of production. Um, and so there, there isn't going to be that asymmetry. You couple that with the rise of these uh, extremely polished high school quarterbacks who can come in. You think about how good Trevor Lawrence looked uh, looking there, uh, you know, his first year or uh, Tua at Alabama, who's, who's in the NFL now. Or um, th These guys are coming out of high school and they're running these sophisticated offenses. They have personal coaches. They don't need kind of that two-year learning process um, like they used to. Of course, most quarterbacks do. We just have a lot more that aren't. Uh, that, that, that don't. And then you couple that with the third factor. So you have, you know, everybody's returning production from 2020. These, these quarterbacks are ready early and earlier. 
Third, the transfer portal has made college football the Wild West. Everyone oh got a free God, transfer. There's so many more transfers than there used to be. It's so hard to keep up with. Um, I, I was trying to scrape it every week, and it just was too, was too much. It's, uh, I had to slow down a little bit and, and wait for dust to settle. Um, and, and so that great realignment, I don't know how that's going to go, uh, how that's going to look going forward. And so those are kind of three variables we'll have to look at. There are teams, Aaron, that have um, 35 seniors right now. You can only offer 25 scholarships a year. They're going to have to play the transfer portal to fill this. Some guys are going to have to get pretty strategic with this roster composition issue. Um, and so that, that that's really interesting about returning production as well. As we see kind of players pursuing opportunities to make more money in a smaller market and, and you know, kind of be the number one guy, big, big fish in a small pond. Guys want a better stylistic fit. Uh, it, it'll be really interesting to see how returning production kind of pans out because the asymmetry might not be as apparent as it was in the past. I know that it's like programs, they recruit so many guys at a position. And then when you don't win the starting job now, the transfer portal makes it so much easier to go elsewhere. They were showing last night on the Jacksonville State UAB game, Clemson's quarterback room from four years ago. And like three of the four guys behind Trevor Lawrence have transferred to other schools at this point. Yeah, and, and just very odd things. Uh, Appalachian State's starting quarterback is going to be Chase Bryce this year. He played at Duke last year and was bad. And so <laughs> but he's very experienced, and he'll drop down a level, and he might have a fine, a fine season at App State. And so I don't think statistically we've really tuned in, hey, how am I going to project this guy to do better? It's a lot like uh, Dan Zembrowski. I'm probably saying his name poorly. Uh, yeah, baseball guy. Yep. Uh, he does like, he did, he did a while back the minor league equivalents, uh, where he says, okay, if you know, you, you were in, uh, Paul Tuckett and you hit 360. well, I'm going to adjust that to the major leagues when you go up to Boston and we're going to, uh, and we're going to adjust for that. I'm playing around a little bit. I try to think of G5 to P5 in those, in those, um, terms, but that's something we're gonna have to dial in a lot more as these guys are moving up and down, uh, and kind of all around with the transfer portal. Do you think a group in five team can get a New Year's six bid this year? Yeah, so um, they'll it'll be interesting to see who it is. They they haven't changed the playoff yet, and so they are still reserving. There is a bid for the highest rated um, group of five champion, and so I think that that will be really really interesting. Last year, Coastal Carolina was undefeated in the regular. Oh, I didn't season. realize there was actually a spot that's yeah. There's like an automatic qualifier for, for oh, one. Good. Yes. Okay. Um, and so so last year it was you know. Cincinnati's to lose. BYU was undefeated until they played Coastal Carolina. Coastal Carolina's uh, schedule was lacking, and so that's why we saw uh, Cincinnati playing Georgia last year in the in the Peach Bowl. This year, some teams um, the 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 combination that you have to look for for who's going to go to the G uh, who's going to get the G six New Year's mm. the G five six bit exactly. Um, say that three times fast, but uh, is you have to look at who's going to be talented enough. Who's going to have the schedule quality? And so that automatically lends you to think, all right, probably a team from the American, right? Because they're going to have kind of the best um, schedule That's there. That's sort of the highest G5 because they used to be a BCS conference. So they're sort of like halfway in between. I yeah, they're, they're kind of the, the old Big East, more or less. Uh, that was an automatic qualifier and, and tied into the Orange Bowl. So uh, UCF, I think with Gus Malls on it at... Um, Coach there, they they played Boise tonight, and UCF Boise is going to be a game that's going to be a huge win in, for either of them looking for the G five race um, and, and and getting into that New Year six. Cincinnati plays Indiana. That if they win that and win the American, they'd obviously be the favorite. That would be the strongest G five win. Uh, a team like Nevada, who has a really great offense, Carson Strong is on draft boards, getting a lot of attention. Um, they really just run the air raid, so I don't know how much that translates, but still, he's 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 talented. Uh, they'll play Kansas state. And so they'd have to do a little rooting for Kansas state in the big 12 to feel like they have enough schedule to get there. Uh, that's another interesting one. I look at SMU, for instance, let's say that SMU, um, Sonny Dykes has a good, a good offense going there. They've got a transfer grant Calcaterra who retired from Oklahoma and should be a really great tight end. Reggie Roberson's an NFL, uh, wide receiver. Tanner Mordecai was at Oklahoma for a little bit at, at quarterback. If they beat TCU in week three or week four, They'll have a pretty solid G5 or Power 5 win, and then they win the American. They, they're a fringe contender for it as well. So uh, pretty much anyone at the top of the American, and then you know you look at Boise State and Nevada kind of out west as the two who might slide in there. BYU is in a real weird spot. Not only will they take a huge step back without Zach Wilson this year at quarterback, but 
they're, they're not in a G5 conference, so they can't be a G5 conference champion. And so they're going to have to get an at-large bid, but then they're competing with all the power five teams. So it's kind of worst of both worlds for BYU to get in there. I don't quite understand. I don't know the economics of college football entirely, but I never quite understood BYU's decision to go independent. Yeah, I, th- I think as much as it is a joke to say, hey, we want to be the um, the the LDS or the Mormon Notre Dame, they have a huge following. I remember TC was in the Mountain West. BYU would play basketball on a Tuesday night in, in Fort Worth, and it would be full of people wearing BYU gear. They have a lot of turnout. They broadcast a lot of TV. Um, but yeah, they, they are a little bit lost in the middle there. It hasn't necessarily been an issue last year. I don't think with their schedule, even if they had beaten Coastal Carolina, they wouldn't have gotten in over Cincinnati. So um, it hasn't ever, you know, the rubber hasn't met the road there. And with playoff expansion, maybe the Big 12 expansion, they'll, they'll definitely be in the fold and be back to a kind of power five status. Tell me about your new group of five award that you're giving out. Oh, I'm so excited about this. Yes. Um, it is called the G fivesman, uh, try riffing on the Heisman there. And, um, I think that when we look at recognizing, you know, the most valuable player in college football, there is a very narrow lens. It's, it's influenced a lot by the playoff. Who's going to be the best player on the best team. And I think college football is so fun because there is so much heterogeneity. There's so much difference from top to bottom and weirdness. And so I've assembled a panel of 30 voters, uh, all, all around the, all around the internet, guys who cover the G5 guys who cover just general college football. And, uh, we are voting on every, uh, we're going to give out a, a most valuable player, a Heisman type award for the G5. I've, I've got a contract with a, a little trophy. We're going to try and send because with name and likeness, you can do these things now without, you know, ruining a player's career. Uh, yeah. So th- there's some really interesting guys in the G5 that are going to be NFL guys as well. Um, I, I think that are really exciting. You think about Sincere McCormick at, at UT San Antonio is a great running back. Jalen Tolbert at South Alabama, a, a, an excellent uh, wide receiver. Guys like Nick Starkle um, at, out at San Jose State, who's throwing a ton of touchdowns uh, against really bad competition, but has been around. So we're um, there's just a lot of guys to celebrate in college football that are that are underrecognized. And so this this award, I think, will will give them an opportunity to be recognized. So we're we're putting together finalizing a. Um, watch list right now we'll do a mid-season kind of finalist award list and then uh and then we'll give it out do do a do a live stream and everything for the uh end of the season and give out that award so i'm, I'm really excited for it we've got some really really sharp people um who are, who are voting and, and and some people who um I, I think we'll get a little traction with our with our live stream so i'm pretty excited about it and then uh as for the big the big daddy award the heisman who are our top candidates for this year yeah, so I, I always lean towards the quarterbacks, right? You know, you think about best quarterback on the best team. So again, talking about those playoff teams, you go Spencer Rattler, Oklahoma, DJ, whose last name I'm still working on pronouncing from Clemson. Uglele or something. You, you Uglele, yeah, I, 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 I'm still working on it. Bryce Young from Alabama, CJ Stroud, Ohio State, JT Daniels, right? Those are your, all right, the Heisman probably goes to the best player on the best team. Uh, the other ones that are interesting, North Carolina, uh, Sam Howell, who is is kind of dark horse sneaking up to to take the the QB one away from Spencer Rattler for for 2022 in the NFL? Um, he and, and Derek King out of the ACC will be interesting candidates to follow. Um, the the non quarterbacks are the ones that are really interesting to me. Derek so, King, I should point out for people, is the quarterback at Miami who started out at Houston and then transferred. Yes, yes, and uh, he and Dana Holgerson were going to sit out a year and revamp, and then he left. <laughs> um, uh, the, the non-quarterbacks are exciting to me, too. A couple of Big 12 ones, Bijan Robinson out of Texas, Brees Hall out of Iowa State. Those two guys were um, pretty under uh, – so Brees Hall was was had the most carries last year and really was like a volume kind of running back. Uh, Bijan Robinson was really underutilized, super highly rated. I think he'll have a breakout year. He might put up enough stats in Steve Sarkeesian's offense uh, to, to be in the conversation, although with, you know, the analytics and the attitudes, who knows if they'll actually recognize a, a running back or not. Um, but yeah, those are, those are kind of my, um, you know, the, the, the core of feasible ones, a long shot that I really like, uh, I, I have see odds for Matt Corral from Old Miss 20 to one odds. Corral is in Lane Kiffin's system there. He throws the ball downfield all the time and uh, is pretty sharp and, and should get on an NFL roster. I think Corral is interesting. If they can beat an Alabama if they can upset a Texas A&M, 
one of those games, I think he'll have enough national prominence and enough stats to kind of be in the running for that. I think he might be game. this year's he he's the best uh chance to be this year's Burrow, like the out of or Wilson, the out of nowhere quarterback who suddenly yeah. just... he definitely has more hype than both of them coming back, but I think that is because we're looking for who that guy is going to be. But the elements are there. A lot of continuity on the offside offensive side of the ball, an offense that prioritizes, you know. Uh, quarterbacks not having to make a ton of decisions. He's he's mobile enough. He's really accurate downfield. I think he could he could be the guy that we say, okay, I thought he was a tier two quarterback and he is decisively a tier one quarterback. Mm-hmm. Parker Fleming, thank you so much. Writes the one foot in bounds Monday wrap-up college column for us at Football Outsiders. He's at Stats O'War on the Twitter. Check out his sites, cfb-graphs.com for tons of advanced college football stats. That does it for the Football Outsiders Radio Hour on Twitch for this week. Thank you for watching. Thank you for watching us on YouTube. Thank you for listening to us as a podcast. And we'll be back next Thursday with a preview of week one in the NFL. We are psyched to play regular season games. Check out all of this weekend's college games because football is fully here. Talk to you guys next week. 